This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. I'm Misha. Firstly, welcome back to the show. For regular listeners, we apologize for the break in the regularity of our episodes. For those of you who don't know, I've of course been in Ukraine working as the war correspondent for the Australian Financial Review covering Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So a couple quick messages from me before we get to the episode. Firstly, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who is sending me well wishes, checking on my safety every day via text message, via email, via social media. Uh, A big thanks. I think I responded to most of you, but some of you I may have missed. So apologies if I didn't respond, but know that I read it and I appreciated it. So thank you so much. Uh, for your care and uh, it did mean a lot at the time and continues to mean a lot so thank you so much for that secondly for those of you who have been following the war a big thanks for the support you've given to all ukrainian causes and to the ukrainian people but specifically for those of you who've helped raise money for the Lviv Refugee Centre. A big thanks. I've, of course, been working with uh, locals in Lviv and Ukraine to get uh, refugees across the border safely. We need money to do that. So together we've raised over 60,000 US dollars. It's a huge effort. Now that money goes directly to getting women and children across the border into safety. It doesn't go through a bureaucracy. It doesn't go through a global charity. It goes directly into the needs of the local charities operating on the ground. So a big thanks If you want to keep giving, jump on my Twitter link and handle. You'll find the link there through to the charity. So a big thanks. Now, to today's episode, if you haven't listened to the show before, we're, of course, going to be getting to our deep dive interviews with leading experts in all things foreign affairs, authoritarianism, and geopolitics. But this week, I'm so happy to have Hagar Shamali back on the show Hagar joins us for our Chinwag episodes where we do a quick whip around the world in 30 or 40 minutes and all things that are happening in geopolitics. This week we talk a lot about Ukraine, obviously we talk about the politics of sanctions, talk about the French election and Macron's re-election prospects. We talk about what's happened to Carrie Lam in Hong Kong, Imran Khan in Pakistan, a bunch of other things. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. If you're new to the show, please rate and review. It really does help. Uh, push us up the Apple algorithms. Um, without any further gibbering from me, enjoy the episode. Okay, Hagar, welcome to our much, much belated chinwag that we promised everyone we'd be doing once a month. Now, of course, it's definitely your fault uh, that we haven't done any <laughs> this year. <laughs> but uh, I've, I've been TikToking too much. That's right, that's right. I've been doing nothing, so I've, 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 I've had all sorts of uh, minor issues on my end. But um, now, lots of things to talk about this week, but clearly the number one thing uh, on everyone's mind of foreign policy sense is the Ukraine war and Russia's invasion. Now, obviously I've just left there, but I kind of wanted to ask you as a sanctions expert, how did you think the sanctions regime has, has gone so far? Has it been effective and has it gone far enough? Because it's one thing that, you know, I was watching very closely from where I was, but you didn't have as much visibility inside as outside. Sure. Well, so first, Misha, I have to say it's so amazing to see you on in, in just 
in general and um, and a little weird to see you outside of Ukraine. So I want to ask you about that later. Um, but I'm so happy to be back with you and and on your podcast and uh, excited to dive into all these issues. We have a lot to talk about. So on sanctions, uh, first, for everybody listening, you know, I worked on sanctions for nine years on and off at the U.S. Treasury Department uh, for the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And including, by the way, when Russia initially annexed Crimea and supported rebels in eastern Ukraine. So I have a lot of familiarity with the, with this issue. And in terms of the sanctions you see now that that have been put out on Ukraine against Russia, it's they are very strong. They're unprecedented in their strength because of how tied into the international financial system Russia is. So these aren't steps what I mean is that they're not steps that the United States and Europe and Japan and Australia and others haven't taken before. These are steps we've taken before against in particularly criminal situations or regimes that are very, that are uh, rogue regimes or those pursuing nefarious criminal behavior like the Syrian government, North Korean government, and so on. But the difference with these sanctions is that Russia was an active participant in international trade. They had assets and they have assets all over the world. And they clearly themselves, the Russian government, didn't expect the sanctions to be as strong as they were. Otherwise, they wouldn't have left foreign reserves uh, abroad. So, for example, over 6% of their reserves are the U.S. dollar and we're sitting here in the United States. They they can no longer access those reserves. Much more uh, is in Europe, over 13 percent in France, something like that. And then another big chunk in Germany, for example, in the U.K. So about a third of their reserves are now inaccessible to them. So they clearly didn't anticipate the sanctions being that strong. Now, as somebody who loves sanctions and uh, believes very strongly in, I know, I, I say it's, it's a weird thing to say because sanctions get a bad reputation. Um, and I obviously don't support when they have collateral damage against innocent people. Uh, I hope that goes without saying. But, but the fact is that they can be an incredibly effective tool at increasing pressure on the target. They, they don't always change behavior, but to set that expectation is unrealistic because sanctions are one prong of a broader strategy. And the strategy is what is supposed to change or stop the nefarious behavior. The sanctions are meant to increase pressure, to get that person or target or company, whomever's being targeted to the negotiating table, because then we've created for ourselves bargaining chips. And then most importantly, it's to disrupt and dismantle the financial networks of those doing the criminal behavior so that they can't do that behavior anymore. If it becomes risky, costly or harder for that person to move, raise and store funds, then it becomes more difficult for them to pursue their criminal operations or war, drugs, weapons of mass destruction, whatever they might be involved in. So that's the target here. The thing that I will say, though, about the sanctions is it's very clear that one of the most important goals on the Biden administration side here in the United States is to fight for unity as much as possible. And that is very noble and very important. We don't want to show daylight between us and our friends and partners and allies. And the sanctions so far have been very united in that in that uh, effort. And that's one of the things that give them strength is their multilateralism. However, 
for 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 what's happening for the war crimes we're seeing these crimes against humanity responding with the sanctions we've responded so far with is not strong enough um and i'm not talking about military aid that's the most important but in terms of sanctions response it needs to be that russia receive no profit from its sale of oil and gas which is 30 percent of its economy that's interesting, right? Because they sort of raised two points. On the the first one about the strength of the sanctions so far, it certainly did catch them on the hop. You know, had Lavrov come out to the foreign minister of Russia say that he was surprised at the strength of the sanctions. And I wonder whether or not somehow in the signalling or at least the lessons that Russia has been taught and Putin has been taught over the last 10 years, 20 years, that the West is generally folds um, under, uh, under pressure and doesn't go hard enough, uh, that had they realised it was going to be this strength, strong, um, it, it, certainly what we've done so far, uh, that they may not have done what they've done. I, I, we'll never know, right? That's like bar, stool, foreign policy. But I think it's the one area that um, is one of the biggest strategic failures uh, so far, at least from the West, in terms of, um, you know, doing what you end up doing. So being clear what you'll do because you end up doing it anyway, but perhaps too late in, in this occasion, certainly the case. But I agree with you in terms of what we're seeing now. You know, some of these reporting that you're seeing in terms of Atabusha, it had been other parts uh, of the country that were under Russian control, the straight murder of citizens, um, all kinds of breaches of the Geneva Convention in terms of dealing with prisoners of war, and then also a horrendous what would appear to be systematic rapes um, of women, children, and so it's horrendous uh, what the reports that are coming out now. So I agree, but in terms of that unity piece, I mean, the United States has already put an embargo on Russian oil and gas, but the people that are refusing are the Germans, the Austrians, um, those that are most dependent um, on oil and gas. It's hard to see how you square that circle. Uh, you know, I think when I look at it realistically, I you'd have to find a way to say we're going to get off oil and gas in a year or two years. It's, very, it's a huge engineering challenge. I mean, the Germans, if all people can do it, but it is tricky um, given the dependence that they have, um, you know, placed upon their countries on Russian oil and gas. Though, of course, we all said they, couldn't, they wouldn't switch off Nord Stream too, and they did, right, as soon as the war started. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, how do you actually see that challenge of, Russia should make no money from its oil and gas. I think everyone agrees with that. But how do you deal with this other side of the coin that is you know, literally what happens to inflation in Germany's, Germany's economy? How do they run their, their heating and their, uh, their manufacturing businesses, et cetera? Oh, completely. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say that that all of Russia's oil and gas should be blocked all over the world. And I know it's easier for me to say that, of course, because... The fact of the matter is Europe has to find a new source for those imports. That's 40% of their oil and gas imports. Uh, They have to find a new source and they have to build the infrastructure to receive oil and gas from that new source. It's not something that can be done overnight. And and it is, it's complicated. And to be fair, by the way, the Europeans came out when, when we here in the United States sanctioned Russia's oil and gas, which of course was easier for us to do. Um, uh, we import a total of about 8% uh, of Russian mineral fuels and oil and gas here. Uh, it's 8% of our imports. So it's much easier for us to make that up. But 
When we did that, the Europeans came out and made a pledge to say that they would significantly reduce their consumption uh, by the end of this year and going forward. And that is important. By 2030 completely, right? Uh That's right. That's right. I mean, I really sincerely hope this war is not continuing by 2030. But but the fact is that in a situation like now, a crisis situation where you have the crimes that you've just detailed, the problem is that promises of reduction in consumption that far off, they don't do much other than to serve as a potential bargaining chip when negotiations are further along. Mm-hmm. They're not going to help in the in the immediate moment. For something to help in the immediate moment, you have to have something that the Russian government feels the pain from. And they are already feeling the pain from a number of these sanctions. For example, the exports related to certain technologies and things like that, that's going to hinder significantly their war machine because as, as, as we've seen reports already that they can't build or repair tanks. Um, so they're, we're, they're going to feel that pain, the, the, the sanctions against the oligarchs, against President Putin himself and the relatives as well. Those are important because it isolates them further. And even when you see news reports of them moving their assets to Turkey or to Syria, let me tell you, it is not a lucrative move to convert your money to the Turkish lira or the Syrian pound. <laughs> that is the point of the sanction. It's to it's to isolate them further and, and to make things more difficult and harder and costlier. But, but the, at the end of the day, it will be very costly for the Europeans to do this. And that inflation will hit them the most. And that is an important thing. And you see it playing out in European elections now, of course, we're going to talk about Macron and Le Pen. Um, and that so that concern of inflation is hitting, but that the inflation will actually hit all over the world because if Russian oil is taken off the market, that's a gap that need, that will be felt all over, that needs to be filled by other players. And unfortunately, the other players that we continue to hear about who may fill that void are players like Venezuela and Iran. It almost feels like a game of who, which thug gets to yeah. sell their oil on the market. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation. And this is why, while I am a big believer in sanctions, as you know, and uh, I think that they are extremely important as part of the strategy here, it's the military aid and support to the Ukrainian military as much as possible. That is what's going to help bring an end to this because of the military might the Ukrainians will show, continue to show, frankly, and that will give Zelensky a greater position of power or strength in the negotiations. Well, I agree with that. I mean, it's actually probably a, a good way to look at where the war currently is because the Russians... Uh, whilst they claim that they are now focusing uh, on the east, the truth of the matter is they've been defeated uh, in the north and parts of the south of the country and certainly around Kiev. Um, the truth of the matter is you can't bullshit anymore. And if your tanks aren't advancing and they're getting destroyed and you're getting absolutely crushed, you have to retreat. And so the Russians have retreated. So the way the Ukrainians have fought has been extraordinary. But I also think, talk about mistakes. Everyone was very afraid to arm the Ukrainians sufficiently before the invasion, that fear of provoking Putin. Well, you know, again, I, you know, I, I don't know why we worry so much about what Putin's view of the world is because he seems to do whatever he wants anyway and, yep. and claim to have been provoked. And I agree with you that, you know, we need to give the Ukrainians the capability to fight at long range and middle range because at the moment their capacity to fight at short range is extraordinary, uh, using stingers and... Um, 
and, uh, you know, handheld missiles against um, aircraft and against tanks has been really, you know, effective, uh, the Javelin missiles in particular, but, uh, and drones, but uh, the ability to defend against Putin's long-range, middle-range um, artillery missile strikes has been, you know, devastating. You've seen that all across the country, how Kiev reduced to rubble, others, you know, Mariupol, you know, you know it's horrendous uh, what's happened there, complete human tragedy. And so... Uh, you know, I, I agree with you that we probably need to arm them more because as the Russians try to coalesce their armies into the east and come, you know, and, and at the moment a lot of their troops and the divisions that they had uh, in the northern part of the country on Kiev, they're currently now in Belarus uh, retooling. But it's not going to be so simple either because a lot of those divisions have been absolutely smashed by the Ukrainians. And so to your point, it's not that so simple uh, when your economy's under sanctions, you've got no money and you're not trading particularly well, that you can actually just rebuild these tanks overnight or replenish these tanks overnight or conscript new soldiers. You know, morale is very low amongst the Russians because they're getting killed. And, and, and we're told all sorts of lies of why they were there, which have not you know, proven to be true. So, you know, I think you're right in terms of getting an effective outcome. If you can't get off oil and gas now, get off as quickly as you possibly can and make it an engineering challenge. But be brave and tool up the Ukrainians and back their bravery because they can win. Yeah, you know, with the right weaponry, they can win. Hundred percent. You know, all the morale and intensity is on their side because understandably they're fighting for their freedom and they're fighting for their country. Uh, but you know, the you know, really dismantling you know the the last advantage that uh, that Putin has, which is aerial superiority at, at mid and long distance. Um, they get rid of that. I think the Russians are in real strife. And, oh, I agree. Uh, but if we don't, then the Ukrainians could be in some trouble as well as those forces coalesce and concentrate on the eastern part of the country, which, you know, when we look back at the military strategy of all this, it would be baffling as to why Putin just threw everything in in a random sort of way. Proves that he's, in, in my opinion, it proves he's actually not some great master strategist, some, you know, this 3D chess player that the world sort of thinks he is. He's actually an emotional lunatic. And this was an emotional decision. And once their first incursion failed, when they didn't take the Andropov airport in Gumsopol and then they were forced back and didn't get Kiev in the first couple of hours, it was all over at that point, really. And then he just kind of panicked and threw everything in. And without any logistical support, without any strategic support, without any real good plan and just kind of hoping that it would all work out. Um, and so, but, you know, it's a pivotal moment of the war now, in my opinion. So... You know, anyone listening, we should be uh, absolutely pressuring every politician around the world to get off the fence and give them the weaponry um, that they Mm -hmm. need. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the thing that I keep thinking of as well is the new Russian general who's been now appointed to oversee the Ukraine war, Alexander Dvornikov. And he, similar to what you said about President Putin, He's not known to be particularly smart. That's not his thing. He's not shrewd or smart or savvy or 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 an, an amazing strategist. The thing that he has going for him and unfortunately going for the Russian military in general is his ruthlessness and their blatant disregard for civilian life. I mean, that blatant disregard doesn't even cover it. And um, and, you know, you made a lot of allusions to it, but that's also precisely why. Arming the Ukrainians with everything they need as fast and as continuously as they need is critical because 
Number one, unlike most situations, you have a military that you can work with. You have a civilian population that is united, that is strong, that you can trust. That is very rare in most. That is almost it. When we when I handled Syria, Syria at the White House, opposite, right? Complete oh, opposite. it was we had nobody to work with. We couldn't work with anybody. The opposition was untrustworthy. They were fractured. They were um I could go on. I don't want to, you know, I, but but what you have here is, is a real force that you can work with. That's the first. And they've proven themselves. And that's clear. The second is that time is not on our side. It's on the side of Russia, of the Russian government. So it should behoove us all the more to give as much as possible. And by the way, when Zelensky, for example, comes out and asks for fighter jets and the United States comes out and says, you know what? We don't think you need fighter jets. What we think you need is uh, the anti-missile defense systems and drones. Listen, anti-missile missile defense systems and the, the switchblade drones uh, are amazing, amazing right. weaponry and equipment. They are very needed. But the thing about the fighter jets is that, number one, um, we are able to get we have I have seen it a number of times when we've armed other militaries or groups, we are able to give weaponry and equipment and place conditions on their use. So we could give the fighter jets and say, but you are not to, for example, go into Russian airspace. Right. We, uh, you are only to use it in Ukraine. Number two, it sends a strong message to Putin. If we say, you know what, you're right, we will give you everything you need because that is the that is what we can do. That is the least we can do in the face of war crimes. I'm going to end on one last thing and then I want to ask you a question, which is on the oil and gas You've seen the former Soviet states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, completely wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas. And they've come out. They've been very strong. I believe it was the Lithuanian leadership that said, if we can do it, so can you. Yes. And it was difficult for them, but they did it. And they feel even more strongly about it because they understand what it means to be under Russian government uh, or well, Soviet, at, at least Soviet type of, of governing. Yeah. And um, and so I think that that's a message we need to heed. The thing I want to ask you is that it's just it's how does it feel? You know, you were there in Ukraine for five, six weeks. Right. Uh, and now yeah, to see you. Seven. And, and, you know, I followed it so closely and all your reporting and and to now see you outside. Just how does it feel? Is it like an emotional whiplash? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, people have heard enough from me, I, I imagine. And the thing about it is like everyone who was asking me was, you know, was it scary being there? And, yeah. From time to time, it's clearly risky. Right. And those missile strikes got very close and I took some road trips. So we were a bit dicey. Um, but I always maintain that I'm not fighting, so I'm not picking up a gun and I'm not, you know, risking my life directly against Russia's military might and also I could leave. And so, you know, when you cross the border, you know, I lined up for about eight hours, finally crossed the border, you know, I, I felt a sense of relief, um, you know, and guilt at the same time, right, the guilt that I'm leaving behind friends and people that became very close to me and, I, you know, I said this a lot, I fell completely in love with Ukraine and Ukrainian people and their bravery. How could you not? And the war's not over. You know, I've left, but the war's not over. And so obviously I'm following it very closely. But that that feeling is profound. And that's why, you know, I feel so strongly about making sure that we arm, you know, the Ukrainian effort because Putin, in my opinion, has lost the war. And any strategic measurement of any objective he had, he's stuffed economically, militarily, he's been humiliated. Um, he's got a united Ukraine nationalist kind of mindset on his doorstep now, everything he feared. 
and uh, the world's completely united against him, or at least NATO is, and Germans are rearming. Like, it's a disaster for Putin. But whilst losing this war, he can still destroy this country on the way out, and that's the thing that I worry about the most is, you know, to everything you said about the brutality of the Russian military, you know, what they've done in Aleppo, what they did in Grozny, uh, you know, they could do that all over Ukraine and reduce it to rubble, and the West can't just watch that happen. So, you know, Ukraine will prevail. The question, the cost and lives and death and destruction is a question for us. You know, they're not going to give up fighting. Uh, so it really comes down to how much are we prepared to tolerate in terms of horrific you know, loss of life and loss of you know, country and, and all the things that we've seen so far. So, you know, I, I feel, you know, like yeah, it's a strange feeling because the things you get very used to, um, you know, like I'd never heard an air raid siren in my entire life. Suddenly there was just something that I didn't really blink at particularly. But, you know, you never think you'd be in that situation. Roadblocks became very normal. Like, you, you know, people carrying AK-47s walking past you seem normal. It's not normal. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. And, and that was in the safe parts of Ukraine. You know, I, I mean, I was out in the, you know, the, you know when I was out in Krivity, you know, uh, Zelensky's hometown where I wrote a profile about him and his hometown, you know, the Russians are at 10 kilometres away and the sirens are going off and, you know, that, that could be worrying. But, again, you know, you have to get very unlucky frankly, to get hit by uh, a missile strike, notwithstanding the indiscriminate firing from the Russians. But, you know, that's why I've always tried to say that, you know, I think the bravery of Ukrainians is something that the world should invest more in. We have not invested enough in it. We underinvested in it heading into this war and we should invest in it more now. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's strange to go be out, but I'll certainly go back and, uh, and I'll continue to report and, and, and talk to people inside the country and, you know, as best I can tell their stories because it's been the honour of my life uh, to tell the stories mm-hmm. of those incredibly brave people. But now switching quickly away from me but remaining uh, Russia adjacent, Emmanuel Macron, so he's heading into a big election um, how do you see this playing out? Because he's getting a lot of criticism in Ukraine by Ukrainians about the way he's handled Putin. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, he kept having these conversations about getting people out of Mariupol. Didn't happen. And meanwhile, Mariupol was being brutalised. So, you know, how do you see those elections playing out and what does it mean for the world? You know, he has a little bit that kind of pattern, actually, now that you mention how he came off a little bit like a, like a savior, right? I, we're going to get people out of Mariupol. Um, he did the same thing a couple of years ago after that mass blast in Lebanon. And he, there was this massive explosion. Uh, for those who may remember, it was in August of 2020. And uh, one of the biggest, I, th- I believe it was the third largest explosion in the world. Uh, and, and, um, and just because of government neglect mainly, and it resulted in in thousands injured and uh, and over two hundred who died, and the Lebanese government was feckless, and Macron came in and flew in just you know I believe it was days later and walked the streets and it was the middle of the pandemic, and he's hugging people and telling them that France will help and France will will help reach justice and fight corruption in in, in Lebanon and so on and and nothing really happened after that. In fact, it was the U.S. government that ended up pursuing sanctions related to corruption after that. Um, 
And so a lot of Lebanese say the same thing, this kind of feeling of, you know, wait a minute, you came on a on a like a white knight on a horse and we were so excited and then you didn't really deliver. And that actually sums up a lot of the criticism related to him locally in France, domestically there. The, the criticism focuses largely on these kind of uh, unfulfilled promises and in particularly as the, and in particular as they relate to the economy and uh, soaring inflation and so on and um, now listen at the same time France has not had a two-term uh, president for the last 20 years right. so it it is uh, it's not an easy thing there or or expected to become to be a second term president uh, it's the opposite here in the United States usually the incumbent has the upper hand and uh, and usually and often the president wins a second term. So this is what he's up against. But, but at the same time, he's facing a fierce fight by the far right leader, Marine Le Pen. And if she sounds familiar, that's because this is her third run for president. And she is also the daughter of, of her father, who also ran for president, um, all of which has been unsuccessful. However, this is the first time where she is posing a real fright, fight. There's a real struggle there. And it's because the um, it's because the French now have to make this decision based on who it's it's a it's almost a vote of who they like the least it's not it doesn't seem to be a vote there aren't there are people of course who support both sides but they're not the majority so the risk here is that you may have low voter turnout and that is could be detrimental to macron mm-hmm. because now he has over on sunday we just had the first round of presidential elections the purpose of which is to narrow down the candidates as expected, the two candidates are Macron, the incumbent, and Marine Le Pen. The next round is on April 24th. And if you ask my, if I had a crystal ball, I believe that Macron will win. But it it won't be by a landslide. It will be very tight. And it, it just creates this existential question for France and for Europe as to what is the future of their democracy. Are they going to have to continue fighting this far-right leadership from here on out. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem, though, when Macron. So it's important to remember the context Macron got elected in, right? So it was just after Brexit, after Trump's election, and then everyone who reads The Economist and The New York Times breathe a big sigh of relief because here comes Macron as the saviour of liberal democracy, right? And the truth of that, I was a bit sceptical of him. One, because... You know, I'm a member of the Australian Labor Party, a bit of an institutionalist. He, he was a guy that was uh, Hollande's essentially treasurer, if you want to call it that, or, you know, secretary treasurer, whatever the term you use in the country. But, you know, he, he sort of left that party, cannibalised it, and kind of cannibalised the old strong parties of the centre-left and the centre-right. And collapsing those institutions is dangerous because, you know, one person saviors are always problematic when they become unpopular and that you're not able to sort of replace from within and create his own party, which is essentially a personality cult. And frankly, the other thing I worried about was with this rise of populism, his style of politics, this kind of like, I don't know, pro-business, uh, socially progressive, economically conservative, felt off-brand and off time, didn't really align with the times, I thought, and I thought the things he was going to try to do may lead to backlash. Of course, we saw that with the Yellow Vest, um, uh, you know, protests. And, uh, and so as a result, I feared that Macron would lead to Le Pen. 
I hope it doesn't, of course, but, you know, if I, I would, you know, I don't know whether I would clearly vote for Macron against Le Pen, but uh, I think he's a wanker. And, I, you know, I, I, I think his <laughs> style of politics is wrong. And, you know, the critique of Macron's politics is exactly the critique I'd make a lot of, uh, a lot of democratic politics. That's why I was so personally big on Joe Biden, because I thought he was a sort of uh, presidential, presidential candidate that could beat Trump because I thought he could at least match him in the right areas and differentiate in the other areas, whereas um, I think that style of, you know, big city-dominated liberalist politics where we know what's good for you and you just shut up and listen is exactly what the backlash that's going on here around the world is about, and he's shorthand for it. Um, So, look, I'll be willing him on, but I worry long-term about, if it's not addressed institutionally, how they actually fix this problem. Um, you know, sort of the French are kind of in this tricky problem where they've got a relative, well, he's done some things to reform their economy, but it's a bit of a sclerotic economy. It's certainly more unequal, maybe because of COVID. Uh, but, uh, you know, that inequality problem and you've got people saying, oh, we need to reform the French economy. It's only going to create those same problems in those areas where Le Pen's strong. Um and there's no institutional political parties to resist her and her movement. And so, you know, if they get through this one, what's the next one look like? You know, because last exactly. time, if you look at the polling, um, he won it about two-thirds. So he won two-thirds of the vote, she won one-third of the vote. This time you're looking at about 53-47. So that gives exactly. you a sense of what people that voted for uh, Macron think of his performance or do they just stay home, right? So then does you know, the intensity that Le Pen has, Le Pen voters will vote Le Pen every time and the people that are on the fence may not vote at all and that's the, the real concern. But, of course, you know, Vladimir Putin be watching very closely too. You know, he's a big supporter of Le Pen and, uh, you know, literally, financially. Mm-hmm. And so... yes. That's right, by the way. Her, yes, Russian banks have given loans to her party. That is a major red flag, by the right. way. Oh, correct, right? But it's a huge, <laughs> this is a big moment here, right? Because the NATO is really aligned very strongly against Putin, to his surprise. Um, regrettably, Macron's run down the status of Putin during his presidency. Uh, he's really trying to talk about this European-style militarist approach and sort of saying we don't need the Americans, and maybe that was a response to Trumpism. Nevertheless, clearly NATO's been needed here, not just the EU, and that America's military power has been critical in uniting um, uniting the world around, uh, around uh, you know, pushing back against Putin. But if Putin's able to knock over France with one of his essential candidates, I mean, it's unthinkable, really. Um, I, I can't even imagine how all that, everything we discussed about unity and the, the, how critical that's been in the face of the, of Ukraine, of the Ukraine war. And if you imagine losing one of the, I mean, France is one of the leaders in helping us reach that unity and you lose that, right. that would be, it just, it would be, it would be horrible. And to have it, by the way, at this timing, of course, I mean, it's a lot of what you're saying is very reminiscent to what we faced here in the United States with our own elections and uh, between, you know, when, when president Trump ran uh, as candidate in, in 2015 and 16 and against, uh, you know, at the end of Obama's tenure and how a lot of, 
his a lot of the reason he was emboldened was a reaction to President Obama's leadership. And so you're seeing that play out. You know, I know there are a lot of differences, but there is a similarity in that regard. But the difference is one of the one of the um, and listen, it was not good for the U.S. for U.S. uh, democracy whatsoever, but it wasn't during a war. Uh, his presidency wasn't during a war where um, uh, a war where you have President Putin involved. And uh, and so it's it would be terrifying to think about how that could undermine. It's peculiar in a way that mm-hmm. there's not been a greater penalty on, on uh, Le Pen, because you look at yes. the way uh, certainly in other Western democracies, anyone that's been cozying up to Putin looks ridiculous now because he's been shown to be what he is. Yet the penalty does not appear to be there. Maybe it's because Macron has not been as, you know, I don't know, strident against Putin. I, it's unclear. I, that's a peculiar one for me because I would have thought, you know, Le Pen being a Putin sympathiser would have to be terrible politics, if nothing else, right, or leaving aside the morality questions. It's an odd one. Um, so we'll have to see where that lands. Now, other uh, notable things happening around the world, Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, what's going on there? So she announced that she would not seek a second term as uh, as uh, in her position, she which is chief that? executive. Was that a yes, she an- or she announced? <laughs> she claims, you know, she's she loves the mic. She she claims that she uh, informed the Chinese regime a year ago that she would not seek a second term because she was basically burned out. She didn't use those words, but basically what she said was that between the protests in Hong Kong and the pandemic, she was just burned out and she wants to spend time with her family and so on, which um, would sound uh, which would sound great, except that uh, because, I mean, she's, as you know, a puppet of the Chinese regime. She has been a major major disappointment to uh, all Hong Kongers and anybody who supports uh, freedom and democracy in Hong Kong or globally, frankly, for that matter. But um, but the thing is that the person who will likely succeed her is uh, John Lee. And um, and he was in charge of Hong Kong security during the protests. He was very in favor of how the police treated the protesters. So this is somebody who will be worse than Carrie Lam. And so, you know, I've never been a fan of Carrie Lam whatsoever. And when I first heard this news, it's not I mean, at at this point, China has has so cemented its grip over Hong Kong that it's not like I expected, you know, um, uh, Johnny Lai to come and take over. And you know what? A, what an amazing individual he was. The he's the he's in prison, unfortunately, but he's the founder of the uh, pro democracy paper Apple Daily in Hong Kong. But um, so I didn't expect that. But but uh, the 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 successor will be worse. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happened in COVID, uh, you know, many things happened, but uh, the CCP were really able to crush Hong Kong. Uh, and its protesters under the guise of lockdowns, which the rest of the world was doing. So the world lost focus on it, for one, because uh, this was really peaking 2019, but then also it was difficult to differentiate. Well, how do you differentiate the crush of democracy and a lockdown uh, happening um, you know, in a normal liberal democracy? And so they were able to really get away with a lot of horrific things and really clean out the last remnants of the political opposition there. So it's at worrying times and, again, the world should really open its doors to Hong Kongers that want to leave. I know the Brits have been doing a lot, but they should definitely um, be, you know, uh, accommodated wherever, wherever you know, we can. Now, 
another country, and a country I know you know a lot about, but a uh, person that a lot of people may have heard about, uh, even if they're not big on uh, Pakistani politics, is Imran Khan, the former Test cricket captain, uh, and, well, and played in Australia a lot, actually. He's a very well-known uh, sort of glamour boy, playboy um, of Australian cricket. Uh, has just sort of lost his gig in Pakistani politics. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So this is a fascinating one. When he, when he came to power in, in Pakistan um, as prime minister a few years ago, he was liked by the vast majority of Pakistanis. There had not been a prime minister in recent history that had been liked as much as Imran Khan. And and a lot of that is some of it could be his celebrity status, what he meant for Pakistan when he went abroad and and showed uh, really, you know, his his former colonizers, basically what it meant to be this star cricket player. And uh, and as you said, he was celebrity playboy uh, jet setter. And uh, so he had a little bit of that, but he came back with this populist message and this message to Pakistanis that he basically that he was there to fight corruption, that he was there to save his country and 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 people liked it and they took to him and they really in particular, um, they resonated with his message against corruption and he pursued anti-corruption measures. They He was criticized for pursuing them really on one side, meaning mainly his uh, the opposition and uh, and not so much against his own government, though he himself has not been accused of corruption. And uh, but he he targeted uh, a wide range, including, by the way, the now the current acting prime minister uh, of Pakistan, now that this one. So Imran Khan has been unseated, essentially, through a no confidence vote uh, by the parliament. He tried Imran Khan tried to block that vote earlier last year when he uh, the parliament was due to make this vote. He dissolved the parliament and then it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decided now just now that um, that uh, they can't they couldn't do that kind of thing, that they, they should be allowed to make that vote. They voted and now it was a no conference vote. So he's out. So he 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 insists that he will come back. Um, the reason I find this fascinating, this whole story is because the U.S. has had a very troubled relationship with Pakistan. It is a relationship that since 9-11, since September 11, uh, over 20 years ago, that we have wanted to develop, that we always viewed when I was in government, uh, for the 12 years I was in government, we viewed Pakistan as a necessary partner and one that we wanted to really nurture and flourish. They were given hundreds of millions of dollars and they were a real disappointment. The Pakistani government was a real disappointment the entire way, um, not just because of what they didn't uphold on their end. But I mean, this is a government that was essentially hiding bin Laden. They served. They did nothing to help the United States uh, or coalition forces find bin Laden. When we did find bin Laden, uh, they complained that we had gone into airspace, into their airspace without uh, proper requests. And then, by the way, under Imran Khan specifically, the foreign policy has gotten even worse. So uh, he has been very pro-Taliban. He has allowed the Taliban to have a home base in Pakistan. And uh, he's leaned much closer toward the Russian and Chinese regimes. And I'm not sure why he made those decisions, to be frank with you, because that, that, that they don't help Pakistan in any way. Perhaps he felt it would resonate with its people. I'm not sure. But um, he has now 
he is now pushing this conspiracy theory that the United States is uh, who ousted him, who was behind the ouster. And that is ridiculous because while I think most of the U.S. government is likely happy to see him go at the same time, it would it would mean that we had a strong influence in Pakistan. And over the past 20 years, we just haven't. It's funny, though, right? I mean, he's obviously taking out of Putin's playbook, which is that he sees the United States behind every single color revolution around the world, including in the Ukraine. But it's, it's always interesting to me that the far right and the far left always believe the United States does everything uh, that mm-hmm. it's running the way. <laughs> and the truth of the matter yes. is, if only uh, they were so competent. So, uh, you know. Um, it's, it's so true. It, it's laughable. I used When I was at the White House, we used to have a saying uh, because when I, I handled the Middle East where uh, you have a lot of conspiracy theorists and every time they would come and say, you know, did the United States do that or did the U.S. must have been behind that. And I used to look at them and say, if only the United States had half the power, you believe we do. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, uh, so we've obviously gone over time as we always do, but we've got our final thoughts, our what's the John Dory, what's the story, what's yours this week, mate? I am pretty taken with this story related to Elon Musk, the Tesla CEO and uh, and Twitter. He it just because it's ridiculous. The whole story is ridiculous and feels like children playing, but playing with really big companies that matter. And so Elon Musk bought nine over nine percent of, of Twitter's stock and uh, was invited to be on the board. I guess apparently he was invited to be on the board before that purchase. So they invited him to be on the board. They announced it right after he he buys this amount of stock. And then about five minutes later, I mean, I believe it was like a day later, but it felt like five minutes. He comes out and announces that he will no longer be on the board and he criticizes the company. And uh, and it just it's it's ridiculous, but it sounds childish, except that there's a real there's a real issue here, which is that apparently one of the agreements that or conditions for him to be on the board was that he would not buy more than 15% of Twitter. And now that he is off the board, there is some real concern apparently uh, among these executives at Twitter and, and in the, in the tech world that he could try to buy up a whole bunch of, of, of Twitter's stakes. So we'll see, we'll have to see what happens, but it's, it's just, it's ridiculous, uh, but fascinating nonetheless. One of the world's great wankers as well. So, uh, you yes. know, I, uh, <laughs> you put it better than me. <laughs> oh, I mean, like Elon Musk, I mean, nobody asked for a private billionaire to create space flight, but here we are. So, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, Lisa, uh, Emmanuel Macron is a democratically elected leader and I will always respect that. Her uh, self-appointed billionaire saviors are uh, at the absolute bottom of my pile. Uh, so uh, my- What's your John Dory? Yeah. <laughs> my John Dory is actually for one of your favourite politicians, uh, Boris Johnson, So who's just been fined uh, for his uh, parties during uh, you know, Euro- United Kingdom lockdowns, um, the party gate, as it were, which uh, is obviously terrible hypocrisy. But mine is actually for the inability for you know, global Britain under Boris Johnson to house any Ukrainian refugees. They promised 100,000 places. Right now I've got friends that are all over Europe who have applied for uh, refuge uh, in the United Kingdom and they can't get placed. And so the system's a complete cluster, you know what, and it's, uh, you know, they're not able to match hosts with, uh, with refugees and complete, complete, 
stuff up and everyone, you know, could see that there was going to be a potential need for this. So it's inexplicable. And so big announcement, 100,000 people, I think they've taken far less than 10% of that and most of them are sort of in no man's land uh, in Europe, treading water, waiting to get into the United Kingdom to get uh, sanctuary. So, you know, get on it, Bojo. Um, do your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because, uh, you know, people's lives depend on it. It's terrible. And so you've got countries like Poland who are much poorer uh, than the United right. Kingdom, having taken millions of people um, from their bordering country in Ukraine and, and good on them. But Such uh, a remarkable job they've done. They're yeah, doing but, such a remarkable yeah, job. Extraordinary. But for the United Kingdom with all its wealth uh, and uh, supposed global status uh, to be unable to process visas, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. uh, this is this is bureaucracy. You can get it done if you want to get it done. Um, and so for all That's his right. visit, you know, he's sending weapons like javelins, great, visiting um, you, uh, into Ukraine, good. But, you know, what people really need is um, to be safe and away from Putin's missiles. So, um, you know, get on it. So that, I think, brings us to the end of another fun-filled episode. I think we can excuse ourselves for having run over time because I spoke for too long, as I always do, but also it's been so long since we've done an episode. So I hope everyone <laughs> got plenty out of it. <laughs> now, of course, check out uh, Hagar's amazing show, Oh My World, which I uh, was uh, I was actually your unofficial Ukrainian correspondent for a period mm. there. So. That's right. That's right. The best Ukraine correspondent. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next month, we'll catch up soon, but great chatting. Okay, Diplomates fans, if you enjoyed that episode of Diplomates Chinwags with Hagar Shamali, make sure you get in the show notes and be sure to subscribe to Hagar's show, Oh My World, which is a brilliant YouTube show. It's extraordinarily well produced and it goes into all the happenings around the world in foreign policy, not just the big ticket items like the Ukraine war, but things that are happening off-Broadway. Hagar covers it all and gets it done in about 10 minutes, so you really enjoy it. It's a really fantastic and quite a funny show. You'll see what I mean when you watch it. Now, if you haven't done your homework already, please rate and review the show. Give us five stars. Give us a generous review. It really helps push a show up and show it to more people. Uh, I've also got some really, really cool interviews coming down the line, so keep an eye out for those. I won't scoop myself by doing it, but make sure you are keeping an eye out for some really cool interviews coming out later. Of course, we'll have Hagar back on for our regular chinwags. Until next time, I'll catch you soon. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.